And so as we now turn our attention to the reading of God's word, let me invite you to either go back in your worship program just a little bit, or you can open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, where we will be looking at the same verse that we read for our assurance of forgiveness this morning. And so hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is an exciting Sunday for us as Pastor Jeff has finally returned uh, from his sabbatical. And so this Sunday is going to be a little bit unique. So if this is your first time here, this is actually not typically how we would do things. And of course, if this is not your first time, you're wondering how this is going to go. Let me give you a bit of a preview. So as Pastor Jeff is back and we kind of debated, I basically told him, look, everyone wants to hear what happened in your sabbatical. And so you can either choose to tell everyone all at once, or you can tell 250 of your closest friends one at a time after the time goes. And so he said, that's fine. I will, I will happily report on my sabbatical and tell everyone kind of the story of what's happened in my life. But we cannot, of course, forsake the reading of scripture and the hearing from God through his word. And so what we typically are doing right now is we're going through this idea of what's all over your worship program, this behold, belong, become bless. And we're taking each one of those points and expounding on it a little bit and then having a story of grace um, and how God has moved in someone's life that kind of illustrates one of those points. And this morning, that story of grace will come from Pastor Jeff. And so we're excited to do that, but here's what else that means. That also means that I can't stand up here and lie to you and say, this is going to be a short sermon, and then we'll have a story, and it's a long sermon, and then we have a long story, right? Instead, now I, I actually have to preach a short sermon because, well, it's Pastor Jeff coming after me, right? So with that being the case, then, we're looking at these four pieces of behold, belong, become, and bless. And here's why. One of the, the vision statement of our church is to see a gospel movement where lives radically change, families flourish, and our city prospers. That's what we want to see. Lives radically change because of the gospel. Families flourishing because of the gospel. Right? Deep relationships flourishing because of the gospel. And then, of course, our city prospering because of the gospel. Now, we think that there are four ways, right, four practices that all of us need to be engaged in, both individually and as a church, in order to see that vision become a reality. That if God would choose to bless our efforts here, these are the efforts that we're actually going to have to put in. We'll leave the results up to God, but here's the practices we want to engage in. And that's beholding God in worship belonging in God's people, becoming more in the image of Christ. And of course, because we have been blessed with such blessings, we now are a blessing to those around us, to our community, to one another. Now, this is a good heuristic for our church. 
How are we doing in these four areas? And we try to think about our ministries in kind of these four terms, beholding, belonging, becoming, blessing. Hence, it is literally written all over the outside, the front, the back, and the inside of your worship program because we think they're pretty important. And they're the practices God's called us into. But we also think the same is true for you. That if you're going to step into the community and purpose that God's created you for, if you're going to get everything that God has for you, it's going to involve you also in your own life, individually, beholding God, belonging, becoming, and blessing. And so we're inviting all of us, all of you, into examining your own life. How might you be doing in each one of these four areas? And this morning, we come to the third of those, and that is becoming. That is, how are we becoming more and more like Christ? How are we becoming and changing? And so with that, this comes right out of our verse from 2 Corinthians, where it says in verse 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That God wants us to become something more, right? This scratches at that deep itch that we all have, where you know, there's always something we want to change about our lives, something we want to change about us personally. And God agrees. He wants to see us change and grow and flourish as well. And so with that, how is it that we become more? And so even though this will be a short sermon, if you could close that door for me, Jamie, thanks. Even though this will be a short sermon, you can quite easily still have three points here, right? And those three points are that what you become is guided by what you behold, who you're becoming is guided by where you find belonging, and you ultimately, as Christians, you are called to become what God has already said that you are. All right, you are called to become what God has already said that you are. So let's tackle that first one here then pretty quickly. So the first one is what you are becoming is guided and directed by what you're beholding. You see, ultimately, the way to becoming everything that God has us to become is informed by the first two of our points already. That is, the way we become is guided by what we behold. And the way that we change and become what God wants us to become is by who we belong to and where we belong. And then, of course, the, the next one that we'll come to next week Blessing, the ways in which we're seeking to be a blessing, of course, influence and change who we are becoming. So let me just take the first one, and here's what I'm going to do for each of these two points quickly. Is I'll give you kind of my crude understanding, and then I'll give you someone's nice theological understanding. All right? So what you're becoming is guided by what you're beholding. This is true of all of us. That the thing that changes and controls who you are is always the thing that you behold the thing that you love the most, that has really captured your imagination. So, for example, when it says here in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That isn't just getting our attention, but it's really leaning into us to say, do you not understand the amazing thing that God has worked? As we sang, this, this depths, the glories of Calvary. You see, this is true of all of us in the most mundane areas of our life. All right, so let me give an example. Um, if you really want to change someone, 
right? If you really want to see lasting change, what you ultimately have to change is what that person beholds, what that person is in love with, right? If you want to try and get, I'll just use myself as an example. I was not exactly into personal hygiene before middle school, okay? Like many boys my age, brushing my teeth was a chore. I didn't even know what deodorant was, right? And why would I ever need to take a bath unless I want to go swimming, right? And you get clean when you get in the pool, right? So that's kind of it. Then this magical thing happens. You start to become interested in what girls think of you. And you start to become interested in what other people think of you. And you start to realize that smelly and girls are not a good combination, that they do not appreciate that. And so then you buy Axe body spray, right? And it goes all over you and your backpack and your jacket and your locker, right? And it, it destroys all of the membranes in our nostrils, right? So you, you change. And then you realize, okay, the Axe body spray might be overdoing it. And then, you know, you finally, you, you go a little bit older and you realize, you know, it would be really helpful if you had more financial resources in your life. And so someone who could never wake up in the morning, now all of a sudden buys an alarm clock. He has more than one pair of pants and they don't have elastic in the waist because he's trying to get a job and go to work, right? You see, the things that you behold and want the most are the things that will actually change the way that you behave. And so the same is true as this passage is telling us that if God, if Jesus is the thing that's captured your imagination the most, that will change you. I love the way A.W. Tozer puts it, where he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about anyone is not what you at a given time may say or do, but what you in your deep heart conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So you become, your becoming is guided by what you're beholding. The second point then is that who you are becoming is guided by where you find belonging. Right? Where you find belonging. Now, this is one of those things that is the, the topic of fascination among sociologists now, political scientists, where you think, how is our country becoming more polarized? How are all these things seem to be changing? How is it you may have friends that just five, ten years ago you thought you were so simpatico with, and now you're like, you really believe that? Or you really think that? How did some of those things seem to change? And what all sociologists will point to is the sense of belonging that we have. That as we continue to sort into these different groups, as we continue right, to kind of find ourselves in different enclaves, that those echo chambers in one sense, for good or for bad, reinforce some of the values and thoughts that we already have. And so this is the old adage that maybe if your mother like mine said to you when you did something ridiculously stupid and said, well, all my friends were doing it, what would your, what would your parents say? They would say, well, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? Now, do you want to know the actual honest answer to that question? 
Yeah, it's yes. And I know it's yes because in high school, when we lived on an island and there was a very large bridge that jumped into much of dirty water, guess what we all friends did? We jumped off of a bridge together. And it was gross and it was disgusting and we lived to tale to tell. But the idea is, yes, yes, you will jump off a bridge if all your friends do it. Absolutely, if all your friends are engaged in something, you will do it because of all of the positive and negative reinforcement that goes into the power that friends have in our lives. And so, as I said, I'll give you my crude response. Yes, you'll jump off a bridge. But as C.S. Lewis would say, interestingly enough, in some sense, he would almost kind of disagree with the first quote that we read, and that is, what you behold informs your belonging. He says this, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him that shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father delights in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. But so it is. That this idea of belonging that really captures us and changes us is when we realize we can bring God pleasure because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That we're actually pleasing in the sight of God because Jesus was the one who was cast out of the sight of God. Jesus was forsaken, was made sin, was abandoned so that we could be adopted. And so that all the pleasure that God the Father and God the Son would share, we're now invited into. That's the kind of joy and exhilaration that we have access to. So what you're becoming is guided by what you're beholding. And what you are becoming is guided by where you find belonging. But ultimately, as Christians, what that means is that we are called to become what God has already called us to be. That you trying to be more like Jesus, trying to grow in your faith spiritually, ultimately, you are called to be what God has already called you to be. You see this in this cryptic phrase almost, where it says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I love the way Martin Luther commented on this passage where he looked at, what does it mean to become the righteousness of God. And in particular, he looked at this phrase in a parallel passage from Romans 1.17, where it talks about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And Luther writes honestly that he hated that phrase. He says almost, not almost, but definitely blasphemously so. 
Because for him, the righteousness of God was by the standard by which he would be measured and judged accordingly. That the righteousness of God is this, this ideal life that we're all supposed to become. And that, of course, none of us can live up to. Hence, we have like an entire part of our service is about confessing that we don't live up to who God's called us to be. So how is it we can become the righteousness of God? Well, Martin Luther writes how he realized that ultimately the thing that was driving him crazy was this standard by which God would judge us as if it wasn't bad enough that we're all kind of born broken in an original sin and that we all have to live a life full of suffering and evil where we witness things done to others, done to ourselves, that you could think, how could a God do this? And then at the end of all of that, God's going to now judge us. And you can understand why Martin Luther, thinking those things through, would find himself hating the righteousness of God, hating God, until, as he writes, he realized that the righteousness of God was not the standard by which he would be judged, but it was the gift for which Jesus lived his entire life to give him. So that, as we read in the C.S. Lewis quote, we might stand before him, pleasing to him, experiencing his pleasure, that we would find belonging in him, and that we could behold the wondrous thing that Jesus did on the cross for us. And so when we are called into becoming the righteousness of God, the concept is not, all right, clean up your act and make sure you're doing it right. Make sure you're having your quiet times, you're praying, you're giving, your whatever, insert activity here. Whatever it may be. And then you can become the righteousness of God. No, for the Christian, it's entirely reversed. It's you've been made righteous by God. Now you get to live into that. And you see over and over again, this is what the New Testament describes as our life as Christians. As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, Not that I have already obtained or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forwards to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. I love it's that concept again of Jesus has made me his own, so now I'm pressing on. Not to earn it, but it's actually what fuels me. You see, Paul talks about this also when he prays for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that may Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, here's the interesting part. He's writing this to Christians who already have, as it said, according to the rest of his glory, may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. They already have the Spirit in their inner being. Why is Paul praying for it? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. They already have Christ in their hearts through faith. Why is, Christ, why is Paul praying for it? that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's this idea that there's all the fullness of God and yet we can be filled with it. That the, what's real and true about us what's, can actually become our reality. But that's what we're invited. We're invited to become what God has already declared us to be.
because Jesus has made that possible. And so to give you an idea of what that might look like over, I don't know, four month period of time when you step away from your church and go gallivanting about the country and lean into what does it look like to become more of God wants you to become, Pastor Jeff is going to come and give us a story of how God has graciously moved in his life throughout this time of sabbatical. So without further ado, please give a loud, warm welcome to Pastor Jeff. Testing? All right. Thank you, Pastor Lewis. Uh, For those of you, and there are many of you I've yet to meet, I look forward to getting to know you better. Uh, For those of you who have forgotten who I am, my name is Jeff, and I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors here. And this is my first Sunday back after a four-month sabbatical. I want to say just how good it is to be here with you all. I missed you all so very much. Uh, I think the time away reminded me of just how blessed I am to pastor this church. And I knew I was in trouble when on the second Sunday of my sabbatical back in May, I told Helen, oh my gosh, I already miss new life. Uh, So you can imagine how much I miss you now. Someone advised me that for your sabbatical report, don't tell the congregation what you did, Rather, tell them what you learned. And so I'm going to spare you the misery of going slide after slide of all the different places we visited, activities we did, and food we ate. Instead, for the next 15 minutes, I want to share with you what God taught me during these past four months. Now, there's no way I can address everything God taught me. And so I'm just going to focus on two major themes. First, God helped me to understand how much of a mess I really am. How much of a mess I really am. You see, the time off helped me realize just how much of my identity is wrapped into my ministry. It helped me to realize just how much I confuse and conflate my relationship with God with my relationship to the church. I know this because during the sabbatical, I found myself restless. I found myself a little bit depressed. I realized how much of my significance and standing uh, is, is determined by you all here, by your response, by the health of this ministry. And that's not healthy. And my sabbatical coach challenged me, saying, Jeff, I want you to discover who you are, not as pastor, preacher, counselor, or leader. I want you to know who you are simply as my child. I want you to read the Bible, not thinking, oh, this would preach well. I want you to watch a movie not thinking, oh, this would be a great illustration. I want you to just spend time with me as my child. And I must say, it wasn't easy. After an hour or two of reading his word and praying, I get bored. 
Like, all right, what next? But thankfully, the Lord gave me creative outlets to to commune with him on a deeper level. He enabled me to rediscover the joy of journaling. And so I found myself writing throughout the day and through journaling, able to distill my thoughts more, uh, understand my observations and perceptions, listen to the narratives that are going on in my heart, and really see what God is doing in my life on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. I also was able to hike all over Orange County. Uh, And through these hikes, you know, these three, four-hour hikes, I would spend praying with the Lord. And thankfully, it's still okay to wear a mask outside so I can pray out loud and no one thinks I'm crazy, right? Um, But through those moments, able to really lean in to my communion with the Lord. And I must say that as God detangled my identity apart from my ministry, and as I learned to wrap my identity around God's presence and pleasure, I found my life that much more liberating, calming, peaceful, and satisfying. As I mentioned, there are two themes that I really focused on, God's presence and God's pleasure. In the beginning, I focused on God's presence and tried to remind myself as God speak to me, I am here always. But on top of that, I leaned into God's pleasure. And I realized that focusing on God's pleasure is uniquely Christian. Because you see, Muslims, Jews, Hindus could all agree with God's presence. Yes, God is with me. Allah is with me. The nature, the world is with me. But God's pleasure is Christian. You see, because of the gospel, as Pastor Lewis explained, because of what Jesus has done for us, as Christians, we can confidently testify that God is pleased with me, that God delights in me, irregardless of our behavior, our performance, our track record, God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. And so I spent some time meditating on God's pleasure over me. And I found that to be most startling in times when I felt most disappointing to the Lord. And yet to see God say, Jeff, my love has not changed. I still love you was very rich and rewarding. Now, in addition to helping me unwind my identity from ministry, God revealed what a mess I am by helping me understand and uncover some childhood shame. This past summer, my family and I had the opportunity to visit Korea. And it was the first time I went to Korea since 1985. So it's been a long time. And I asked myself, why has it been so long? The reality is because I never had a desire to visit Korea, even though that's where my parents are from. I had no interest whatsoever. I didn't understand why until I went. You see, one day we visited Gongbukgung Palace. For those of you who are fluent in Korean, my apologies. Um, It's a historic palace built in the 14th century. 
And it was there where my mind was blown. Because you see, there were a lot of tourists there. A lot of foreigners dressed in what Koreans call hanboks, which is traditional Korean clothes. It's really flowery, bright pastel colors. If we can put up a picture, slide one. You can see an example of, of, of these dress. So, so men and women, black people, brown people, white people, were all wearing these hanboks, taking selfies in the hot sun and high humidity. What was going on? Well, apparently these tourists were renting these hanboks, and my guess is they were reliving their favorite K-dramas. You see, there are a lot of K-dramas that are historical pieces. It's kind of like cosplay, right? They were, they were dressing up, pretending that they were Korean. And this blew my mind. Why? You see, growing up, I hated hanboks. Every New Year, my mom would say, Jeffrey, you want to wear this? And I would protest. Why? Because they looked funny because they looked weird, because they looked very un-American. You see, for my childhood, I grew up in a city that was 95% white. I was one of two Asians in my entire grade. And it was then that I realized that I had an unconscious longing to look like everyone else and an unconscious loathing that I was Korean. And so when my mom said, do you want to dress up in a hanbok? No way. Because it represents the very thing I'm ashamed of. And so if I grew up with that type of unconscious shame, you could see why it was so disorienting for me to see blonde, blue-eyed Americans dressed up in hanboks, becoming the very thing that I detested. And just as much as God was revealing this unconscious shame I had over my ethnic identity, he was also helping me grow in deep appreciation and admiration for the Korean people, their culture, their food, their people. We had, a visit to, we had an opportunity to visit the DMZ. Next slide. And there I was just acquainted with the traumatic event the Korean War had upon the Korean people. To be ripped apart from your spouse, your kids, your siblings, your parents. These ribbons represent the prayers of a family. And when the wind blows, they blow towards North Korea. And they represent a family's longing to see their loved one again. We also had an opportunity to visit uh, the Korean Independent Museum, which narrated what life was like for Korea under occupation in the early 19th century or early 20th century. As a US history major, I learned a lot about the oppression towards the Irish Americans towards African-Americans, towards the Japanese-Americans. 
This was my first time really seeing and being exposed to the oppression of the Koreans by the Japanese in the early 20th century. And my heart broke. At the same time as tourists, you know, my wife and I are going around asking people for help, directions, questions, and we were so touched and amazed by the, the great generosity and kindness of strangers shown towards us. And the embracing of my Korean-American identity would become all the more cemented through my exploration of my great-great-great-grand-uncle, Sajepir, otherwise known as Philip Jason. For those of you who don't know, Sajepir is one of the founding fathers of Korea's uh, republic. He would be on the Mount Rushmore of Korea's independence. And so throughout Korea, we visited various monuments and museums dedicated to his honor. Uh, for example, here's a, a picture of a statue of him found in Independence Park, uh, found in Seoul. Next slide is a picture of the Independence Arch, which he built and commissioned, which also stands at the Independence Park. The significance of this arch, which was built in 1895, is that prior to this arch, there was another gate that was built for foreign countries. It was known as the Welcome Gate. And it was Korea's way of saying, we welcome you to our country. Unfortunately, for centuries, Korea was living under uh, uh, occupation by various foreign territories. And so Sajapil had that uh, raised and with the approval of the king at the time, built the independence arch, patterned after the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, as a way of telling the world, we are our own sovereign nation. Now, Philip Jason was not only a famous Korean, but also he happens to be a fam very famous American. In fact, he's the first Korean American in US history, becoming an American citizen in 1890. As a US citizen, Philip Jason championed the cause for an independent Korea. He advised multiple presidents uh, of America of what's going on in Korea so that the American government would apply pressure to the foreign countries to support a democratic Korea. He also happened to marry the niece of President James Buchanan and leveraged his position in that family to support the cause of Korea. My family and I had the opportunity to visit his home in Pennsylvania, which is now a museum. And we also visited a statue of him in Washington, D.C., as seen here. Next slide. I was told that there are only two statues of Asians in Washington, D.C. One is of Philip Jason, and the other is of Gandhi. And so that's how prestigious a figure he is in American history. Now, how did following his footsteps help me? Well, two things stick out for me. One, Philip Jason reminds me of how all of us are called to live for something greater than ourselves. This was a man who sacrificed much for the greater good of his countrymen. As those of us who live in Orange County, 
the temptation for all of us, including myself, is to live for our own comfort, our own ease, leisure, and families. But God calls us to live for a greater vision, a greater purpose, and so that challenged me. The other thing that I gained from studying him was to see a man utilize his bicultural identity as both a Korean and American for the greater good. He helped me to see that my Korean hyphen American identity is not a liability. It's not something I should be ashamed of, but something to be embraced and that actually can be leveraged for the greater good. And as I look out into this room, I see a lot of hyphenated identities. I see how that puts us in a unique position to make an impact on the kingdom of God, especially as this country becomes more and more diverse. Now, as much as I learned about myself, there was another great theme that the Lord helped me to really confront. I learned a lot about him. (laughs) He became really big to me. Specifically, I learned that God is oh so trustworthy and oh so wise. You see, something interesting happened before we left for Korea. We were scheduled to leave on a Sunday, June 26th to be exact. At the time, Korea required everyone to have a negative COVID test before they left, before you get on the plane. Well, can you guess what happened? The day before, we all go to get tested, and I'm feeling a sore throat. I'm like, oh no. I alone tested negative, I mean tested positive of my family. We were devastated. We were panicking. I was thinking, what do we do? Do we reschedule? Do we postpone to the winter? Do we go in August? Do we go next summer? But all those avenues just didn't work out. And we realized what was best was for us to send the family and me to join my family as soon as I test negative. I must say that those few days, that week I was home, was miserable. I was filled with so much guilt. The reason is because that positive test was due to poor decision I made in going to a conference with thousands of people the week before. And so I was filled with guilt, saying, I just ruined our vacation. I just ruined this trip that my family were so excited to go on. And yet it was in that time of self-loathing and and groveling that God said, really? Jeff, I'm trying to teach you something. You see, God helped me to realize that behind my guilt and loathing was a narrative, a false narrative that was playing in my head. It was the belief that my family needed me to enjoy Korea. That they need, that I was indispensable to their enjoyment of Korea. It was a very ungodly belief. 
And God was rebuking me and saying, Jeff, your family doesn't need you. Do you trust me with your family? And you see, this was a very, uh, a very uh, common question because at the beginning of my sabbatical, the God was saying the same thing, same thing, except he was saying, do you trust me with your church? Do you trust that your church can grow and thrive without you? And I slowly said, yes, Lord, I trust you. But now God was doing something different. Do you trust me with your family? That was harder. And God showed me that I could. In fact, when you ask one of my kids, what was your favorite part of Korea? He starts describing things he did during the first week. (laughs) I remember after he rattled off a few things, I'm like, wait, that's not when I was there. He's like, oh, yeah. And God showed me, my family, I'm not indispensable even to my family. God is Lord of all. He is their ultimate shepherd. Now, learning to trust God would not end there. In August, I planned a week-long trip to Banff in Canada with my college friends. Now, I may not have been that excited to go to Korea, as I explained, but I was really excited about Banff. I remember the week leading up to it, uh, telling my, my buddies who are all working and have families, I've got the most time, I'll plan the itinerary. And so I'm doing research into the hours of the night, planning out different hikes here and there. Super excited. Can you guess what happened? We were scheduled to leave on Monday. On Sunday, the day before, I go out to play soccer. What I do every Sunday afternoon for the last 25 years, seemingly. In the first 10 minutes of the game, I feel something in my knee. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel good. Uh, I think I'm going to walk off the field because I've got a big trip tomorrow. So I walk off the field and I play it conservative. 15 minutes later, I go to my car and I can't put weight on my, my, my knee. I'm hobbling to the car and I'm sweating. Oh my, what is going on? By the time I get home, I can't even limp. I have to get the crutches, thankfully that we're in the garage, and I'm using crutches, going up and down the stairs, going throughout the house. I'm texting my friends. I don't think I can go. Um, I'm angry. I can't believe this is happening again. Um, And I'm upset with God, really upset. And I remember my wife, Helen, great words of wisdom. Jeff, you know it's not just able-bodied people who enjoy Banff. There are plenty of elderly, disabled people who go. And I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) right? And so I'm like, okay, I'll just make the most of it. I'm still kind of grumbling. I'm Googling Banff for disabled people. (laughs) Generate a list. And, um, you know, that's what happened. The next day, you know, in the morning, call an Uber. I'm waiting outside my home on my crutches with my suitcase. I'm thinking to myself, boy, I hope the Uber driver, when he comes, will put my luggage in the trunk. Right? That's how helpless I was. 
SUV pulls up, and uh, no one gets out of the car. I'm like, all right, that's fine. So I'm like pushing the suitcase ahead of me and then going like this, pushing it and going like this. I load into the car, I get into the back seat, I'm a little bit complaining, or maybe a lot. And then we're driving off, and the driver apologizes. He says, I'm so sorry I couldn't get your, late, your, your luggage, but as you can see, I'm disabled. And I look forward, and he's paraplegic. No use with his legs. He has his car outfitted so he can drive with a joystick with his hand. And there's a wheelchair in the passenger seat. And I'm like, wow, tell me your story. And he begins to explain how he grew up in Iran, and he was an electrical engineer doing an inspection of a building, and he fell 20, uh, 20 feet and severed his spine 10 years before. And he came to America because there's more help for people who are disabled like him. And he's just telling me his fight and his story. Talk about a perspective change for me. And the Lord was ministering to me. What are the chances? That's not coincidence. That was planned. And so when I was at the airport, I'm in a wheelchair being wheeled around. And God was helping me to understand, to see what it's like to live through the eyes of millions of people who live uh, disabled, and God softened my heart. But then in Calgary, when we landed, I was reminded of why God allowed this to happen. When I met with my friends, we all got there. First thing I do is I'm apologizing. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so stupid. I shouldn't have played soccer. I don't want to hold you guys back. Go enjoy Banff. I've got my own itinerary. Um, don't worry about me. And one of my friends, and if we could show a slide of uh, my friends, one of my friends, Jason, was like, Jeff, yeah, Banff is beautiful. The hikes are great. But the reason why I took time off was so that we can hang out together. And during that trip, my friends were so attentive to my needs, opening doors, getting my food, one brother did my laundry and folded my clothes. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you didn't have to fold my boxers, you know? Um, and I, I think God was just saying, hey, enjoy the beauty of friendship. You've got some good friends here. And so I had specific plans, but God had a better plan, a more humbling plan and yet a, a better plan. And I want to share more next Sunday as I unpack more about my sabbatical. Last but not least, um, the best part of my sabbatical was it allowed me to spend a lot of time with my family. Um, a lot of time hanging out with them, doing nothing, or doing special stuff. Um, as many of you know, my oldest went off to college. And so uh, uh, being able to spend time with her before she left was gold, was absolutely precious. Uh, spending time with my boys, I feel closer to them. 
uh, the time gave me and Helen the space to really lean into our marriage and do some work on our marriage. I'm really thankful. Uh, some, uh, one thing I really enjoyed was going to church with Helen, um, being able to worship with her and listen to sermons with her. It reminded me of what life was like before I became a pastor. And so for all of these reasons, I want to thank you, church, for letting me leave and being so gracious. Um, whenever I tell my pastor friends about the sabbatical, one question that tends to come up is, did anyone complain? And I'm like, complain? And they're like, oh, yeah. When I went on sabbatical, people complained. Um, and I'm like, no. They were so, maybe some of you were complaining internally, but I didn't hear anything. Um, and so I really appreciate uh, your generosity, the texts, the cards you sent me, even during the sabbatical, saying that you're praying for me. It was such a joy. I want to thank the elders for giving me and my family this gift, for thinking of our spiritual well-being. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Rick, Mike, and Luan, and Helen for being part, helping me craft a proposal that was accepted by the Lilly Foundation that financed uh, my sabbatical. And last but not least, I don't think anyone was more impacted by my sabbatical than Pastor Lewis. <laughs> give him a hand. Thank you for holding down the fort so competently, so faithfully. Um, it made it easy for me to step away, to know that you and the elders were there caring for the people. And uh, I know there were many moments where you probably wanted to call me and be like, what the heck? Why did you leave this summer? Do you know what's going on? But whenever I touched base with you, and it was always me calling you, you not calling me, uh, you were just took everything so in stride, doing your best to uh, preserve um, and protect my sabbatical, and I really appreciate that. And here's a little gift as an expression of our church's thanksgiving for you. Yeah. I went over time. I am so sorry. Let's all stand and sing our last song. We'll give some time for the praise team to come up. <laughs>